Welcome to the F Word Conversations on Faith. I'm your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky. It's good to be with you all today. Thank you so much for listening. Please know how much I appreciate it. Uh, it means a lot to me. And today I want to talk a little bit about, I want to start with an idea of vulnerability, but what we're really going to talk about today is this idea of experiencing freedom because of our faith or liberation. Uh, but vulnerability is on my mind because this past Sunday at the gathering, I started a series called Real, The Power of Vulnerability. And so I've been doing a lot of studying about vulnerability, what it is. And of course, it's a popular term. We all know that. Brene Brown writes about it. It's now a leadership thing, part of emotional intelligence and all this. But it's actually an idea that's present in Scripture. And I said in my sermon this past week, which, by the way, you can go and listen to that at gatheringnow.org. And I encourage you to do that, actually. But I talk about how vulnerability, it comes from this Latin word that means wounded. And so to be vulnerable is literally to show your woundedness or to your your weakness. And, um, and this stuff isn't necessarily, you know, things that we've done wrong or something like that, but just kind of anything that gets in the way or keeps us from being the people that God uh, created us to be. And if you look at scripture, there's actually all sorts of stories about people overcoming things that are holding them back or keeping them down. And sometimes those things are external to us. And so there's stories that literally like people are held down by chains or, you know, these, these stories of exorcisms where people are, you know, being, um, being held down by some force outside of themselves. And we see that all, I think all over the place in our culture that, there are systemic forces, uh, racial injustice, stigmas around mental health, emotional or uh, gender and sexual, uh, you know, stigmas or biases. I mean, all this kind of stuff that can that can make us feel like we're less than we're supposed to be and that keep us held down. There's all sorts of internal things that I think that we put on ourselves. I mean, sometimes it can be past mistakes. It can be... Um, like parts of our life that we don't love. It can be um, experiences that we've had or stories that we've been told about ourselves and things that people have said. But anyway, there's all this stuff that kind of keeps us from being the people that God created us to be. And and actually naming some of that, beginning to um, no longer hide from those things that hold us down, but to actually begin to lean into them, to name them, to confront them, to address them. This is the beginning of a pathway towards healing and freedom. And so vulnerability for me this past week has got me thinking a lot about like vulnerability is kind of a first step in being willing to lean into or to name or to address or just to see parts of our lives that we so often don't want to pay attention to or don't want to see or that we see as maybe negative or something weak or something like that. And so I actually preached about that. And in my sermon, I actually share what that looked like for me. I share a personal story of something that I was afraid of naming for a long time, that I was hiding for a long time. And so I'm not going to tell it to you on here. You can go listen to the message if you want to hear about that. Um, But uh, today I'm going to talk to a guest whose life's work has been about liberation. 
and liberation is kind of a big word. We're not usually used to hearing it, but liberation in one sense is what Jesus came to give us. I mean, Paul writes in Galatians, it's at the beginning of chapter uh, five. He writes, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. In other words, that Jesus didn't just came come to like save you from sin or f- from all these things, but Jesus came to save you for something. I used to have a theology professor that said, you know, you're being saved from something, but you're also being saved for something. And, and therefore, liberation or freedom, the ability to fully be who God created us to be, no longer being afraid to show parts of who we are, no longer being embarrassed, no longer being held down by forces outside of us or forces within us. I mean, that's sort of the ultimate goal of, of Christ, of, of, of salvation, if you want to put it that way. And so um, a different word for freedom is liberation. You know, what does it look like to be liberated from the things that are holding us back? And my guest today uh, talks all about liberation, both in a really specific sense of what it means to sort of confront injustices and oppressions that we see in the world, particularly around racial injustice or other kinds of injustice, but also like on a really personal level, how do we overcome forces in our lives that uh, oppress us and how do we find liberation from that? And so that's what we're going to talk about today and that's what we're going to get to get to listen to. But before I introduce my guest, um, let me just share a reminder that uh, this series, Vulnerability, this series all about the power of vulnerability, it's called Real. You can listen to that at gatheringnow.org. We're going to be talking about it actually for the next three weeks. So I talked about it this last Sunday. We have three more weeks of it. I'm talking about what it means to be vulnerable with ourselves. That was this past week with God, with other people. And then I kind of end with what it's like to live a lifestyle of vulnerability or humility, uh, the Bible calls it. And so I really encourage you, you know, I don't say this enough, but if you don't have a church, if you haven't gone to church, maybe you've been burned by the church or the church has been one of those places that has uh, felt oppressive to you or that has told you you don't belong. I want to say that um, I understand that. We have a lot of people who are coming to the gathering and finding sort of a renewed connection to God, uh, a renewed place where they can belong. So I just encourage you, if you don't have a church, I really hope you'll check it out. Uh, You can worship with us online at gatheringnow.org. If you listen to this and don't live in the St. Louis area, we have a lot of people now who just listen online. But you can also come now and join us at one of our physical locations. We we worship at three physical sites in St. Louis. One is in the city on McCausland at the intersection of Manchester and McCausland. One's in downtown Clayton. One's in Webster Groves. And we would just love to have you. And so I want to issue that invitation. I'd love for you to come and join me uh, as we have this conversation about what it means to be real. And uh, you can find out more at gatheringnow.org. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Dietra Wise-Baker. Dr. Baker is an activist, a teacher, a community organizer, anti-racist trainer, preacher, and now she brings all of that to bear in her new role as a professor at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Dr. Baker, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Good to be here. I was just talking to you about this, but I think you are officially the first repeat guest on this podcast. As I was piloting the idea for a weekly podcast to talk to people about life and faith, 
you were the very first person that I called and it was back at the beginning of the pandemic. So thank you so much for doing it again. Absolutely. Honored. <laughs> Glad to be in conversation with you. Well, we first met a long time ago. We were both starting churches in St. Louis and uh, you've worn so many hats in ministry, and today I want to explore some of those. But first, I just wanted to start with you. Tell people a little bit about you. Did you grow? Where did you grow up, and what role did faith play, kind of in your own upbringing? Yeah, I always tell people that I've been in St. Louis a long time, but I'm actually a New Yorker. Hmm. I grew up in uh, Rockland County, New York, which is a suburb of uh, New York City, and uh, grew up. Um, in the midst of a lot of diversity, um, even, you know, 20 years ago, uh, very diverse environment. Um, and uh, when I was a kid, uh, I had folks in the community that took me to church. My family didn't take me to church. I went with some some uh, neighbors, took me to church. And so that's how I got introduced to the church. And they were pretty faithful. So if I wanted to hang with them, uh, that's where I found them. So mm. I became a pretty regular attender. And then um, when I got into college, I I would say that's when I, you know, developed a relationship with um, Jesus for myself um, and uh, uh, started to grow in the faith um, sort of from that place on um, is it something as my own. Um, yeah. So that's a little bit about, you know, uh, I grew up and how got introduced to the faith. I really, I mean... Since that time of first kind of getting called into ministry, that ministry of yours has taken, has multiplied and taken you to all sorts of different roles. You've, I said this in the intro, you've been your pastor, you've been a chaplain who worked with incarcerated youth, you've been a community organizer that worked on the school to prison pipeline. But a common thread through a lot of your work is a particular word that I really wanted to talk about today, and the word is liberation. You even mm-hmm. named your church when you started a church, Liberation Church. Can you talk about that word and what specifically it means to you? Just talk a little bit about that word. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it starts back in New York as a kid, like looking at the neighborhoods. And even though um, New York is pretty diverse, even in neighborhoods, economically and um, racially, I could see that there was a difference in opportunities and what was present in the neighborhood. And so I sort of remember that observation as a kid, like, hmm, why does our neighborhood have these things? And when I go to my other friends, they have these kinds of things. And so I just began to learn that over time that there were bigger forces um, that were shaping and designing neighborhoods and that it wasn't just sort of people's individual choices, you know, while those are important, that they weren't the only forces um, that were shaping sort of what I was seeing. And I began to name sort of the work to bridge that gap, you know, liberation. Uh, and so I got introduced to theologians and um, to organizers and activists who were about, you know, that bridging that disparity and creating a, a brand new world. But that's sort of my initial um observation of it and you know i would say maybe you know my vocational call although it's taken many hats and shapes it's been essentially um to um to bridge the gap um between individual and institutional power um the parts of ourselves i think 
that um, get lost um, and the ways that communities are shaped by forces bigger than than us individually that um, we need to come in contact with and uh, be transformative agents of. I know that, I mean, I don't know if this is how you would describe yourself, but, you know, I, th- I think about you as being one in a long line of, you kind of mentioned this, liberation and womenist theologians. I mean, there's a whole branch of theology that for you must have been so cool when you discovered, hey, this little impulse or this thought that I was having, it's actually a thing where there's all sorts of people who've gone before me that have named it and and studied it. But can you talk a little bit about kind of liberation as a, you know, as a theology and what is liberation and, and maybe particularly womenist theology. And as you talk about that, I, I'd love for you, you know, kind of why is it maybe more relevant to normal people than we first think? I mean, oftentimes we hear these big words, theology and liberation, and we don't necessarily connect them to our everyday lives, but talk a little bit about what is liberation and womanist theology and, and why do you think it's it's actually pretty relevant for, quote, normal people? Absolutely. So, yes, I definitely would identify myself as a, a, a womanist a theologian, a preacher and teacher. Um, that's actually what I did my doctorate um, thesis on, a womanist preaching. And so, you know, I would describe womanist theology as, um, as a theolo- theology that um, helps people to think about God at the intersection of race, class, and gender, and given what I've said about like where I grew up and what I noticed, um, you could see sort of the immediate appeal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. When I'm sitting in the classroom, I'm like, okay, this is this is my life. This is these are the observations. I I need I need more of this. Give me more. Yeah. And so um, so it's sort of sitting at that intersection of God and race and gender and class um, and um, not only thinking about um, what that means for you individually, but what that means structurally, what that means for the community, um, what does that mean for the world? Um, And so I think some of the relevant pieces for folks, I mean, one of the first things that it helped me do was just to ask some questions, like give me permission Mm -hmm. to, to ask some questions, honestly, about a lot of experiences in my life that didn't make like church sense, you know? You know, when people say, oh, you know, God is good and all the time, God is good right now. Well, you know, both of my parents um, were addicted to drugs. I knew that that wasn't how it was supposed to be, um, but that's the life that I was living and those are the parents that I had. Um, And so I had to wrestle with, well, what is that, you know, what does it mean that God is good? Because, you know, a lot of what I'm dealing with right now. (laughs) It doesn't look so good. It doesn't look so good. And so what are these little sayings and these these teachings that the church have, what do they really mean? And so womanist theology and liberation theology, you know, always purports sort of a harmonetic of resistance, which is, you know, let's question, you know, things as they are, not for just the sake of questioning, but in conversation with experiences that are real, that are authentic to our lives, that don't make sense, that we're trying to make meaning of. And so it gave me that permission um, to not have to um, live with anyone else's answers about anything, including faith um, and God. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to, 
you know, what I wanted to talk about today, and I wanted to confess something to you, you know, I heard you give an academic talk recently, and, and you were talking about uh, liberation, and you, you introduced uh, something called the liberating cycle, which was, um, which is actually a process that people can use to begin to ask some of these questions and explore liberation. And uh, b- before I ask you about it specifically, I just wanted to say, you know, I, I so appreciated it when I heard it because I, I, I do think there are people, you know, you named that, I mean, there's some intersections of, of race, of gender, of uh, class that, that you dealt with and that a lot of liberation and, and specifically womanist theology speaks to and, and kind of comes out of. And I don't want to separate it from those very real uh, systems uh, of, in, you know, in intersecting injustices that, that gave birth to it. But I, I have to tell you, like, even as a, a, a white man who mm-hmm. who ha- hasn't necessarily been in that, it was it, it really was relevant and striking and convicting to me. I mean, it, it reminded me in seminary of when I read some of these uh, theologians and even as you were talking. And and so in some ways I thought this is so relevant not to take it away from sort of the specific, uh, life situations that it's rooted in, but I think so relevant across the board. Um, talk a little bit before I ask you about the cycle, you know, what does liberation look like in the lives of ordinary people? Maybe in some of those specific ways uh, about, class and race and gender, and then maybe just in some other general ways that, that you've seen it play out? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I sort of go back to, um, you know, church planting days, and um, we had this chant that we would say, and we'd say, who are we? And we'd say, liberators, liberate, liberating lives, liberating communities with every breath of our being. Mm. Um, and so I think liberation um, is a way that faith-based community organizing uh, is offering as a way for us to become our most authentic and powerful version of ourselves. Um, And maybe that's some of what you heard. It's, you know, how do I kind of clear out um, the individual forces, you know, um, (laughs) that are working on me um, that might have happened a variety of ways. Most people somehow in their childhood or somewhere in their childhood, there's some things. Um, that need to be cleared out and healed. Um, but also, again, those sort of structural forces, you know, in neighborhoods and communities in our history um, that are also shaping um, us. Um, and how um, do we reclaim um, our most authentic and powerful self um, in spite of um, how those forces have worked on us individually and, and structurally? And so I think that's ultimately what the process is Mm. about is how to pull us through um, the process of both of those. And I think both of them are necessary um, for us to come into sort of full self. Yeah. Thank you. That was, that was exactly what I heard when I, when you were giving that talk, as I was just listening to you now, I thought, yes. I mean, in that sense, all of us uh, were created by God, and yet we've had these forces, both internal and external, that have worked on us that, um, that in a sense, we all need liberating from. So with that kind of in mind, I'd love to just talk some about this liberating cycle or process that, that I heard you talk about. 
And really, I kind of saw it as a, a process, not only for community organizers and to think about systemic injustice in our communities and in the world, but also for individuals. So sure. I just thought I'd jump in and kind of walk us through this process of liberation. Let's put some actual concrete steps to it. Um, mm-hmm. You started in step one with something called naming your oppression. Can you talk about that kind of first step? Yeah. Um, in the liberating cycle, it, it, this may seem like it, it means structural, but in the liberating cycle, you're actually talking about individual. You're thinking about your own life, um, your own history, um, your own childhood, and to think about um, what really, what is that inside oppressor? Um, and I, you know, sort of gave the example that for me, I mean, um, having two parents who were um, struggling with addiction um, was definitely like very, you can imagine, challenging <laughs> for a kid. Um, but like what that turned into, my way of dealing with that is what became my oppressor. And that was, you know, um, trying to be perfect, you know, trying to make up for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could imagine how in all kinds of ways, how that, um, could get in my way <laughs> Absolutely. as I tried to be my authentic and full, full self. Yeah. Perfectionism is a, uh, I, I imagine it can be a, a burdensome, you know, s- source of oppression when we have to be perfect uh-huh. all the time. Uh, you, the, the second step that you talked about was, you know, after we name, uh, after you name your oppression to name your oppressor, mm-hmm. talk about yeah. what it means to name your oppressor and particularly kind of how we have to sometimes push past our initial idea of what that might be to dig a little deeper, to really get to the root, the root system or reality that is really kind of causing some of this. Mm-hmm. Cause I imagine it's easy for us a lot of people that just, you know, blame a, a parent or a person or just immediately right. name something, but t- talk a little bit about what it means to name your oppressor. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you are looking to name, um, you know, um, initially you're, you're looking for a name, you're looking for the person, you know, who is the, who or what is the embodiment of, um, of, the oppression that you you've been facing, the barrier you've been facing is particularly that that inside that inside barrier um, that you're facing. Um, and I and I might have said this, you know, initially that was my mom and my dad. Like I thought, okay, they are definitely mm-hmm. those folks. But through you know lots of therapy and actually being around other people, particularly children, all those years that I was working with children, some who were also struggling with addiction. Um, you know, sometimes being with people who were like my parents, but not my parents, you know, without the emotional triggers gave me a clearer view of what was happening to them and the forces that were acting upon them. Yeah. Right. Uh, Cause when you're getting hurt, you don't really, you don't really care about that, yeah. <laughs> about yeah. their reasons or what's impacting them. Um, but that's sort of like the process that I had to do is like, you know, what made, what made them this way? What, you know, what things happened to them? Um, in their own families or in the community, you know, what is going on, what created this? And, um, I began to realize that what created it wasn't just their choices. And I think that's so important not to let people in our lives, maybe who contribute to to hurt or 
to that oppression, not to let them off the hook, but it's sort of like asking the next question that it seems like often points us to the, the larger realities or what, sometimes what we call systemic realities, which we realize are at power, that it's more than just one person doing something bad. Absolutely. I mean, I began to see, you know, okay, there's, you know, there's people that could have helped, you know, you know, that my parents, you know, sometimes would reach out for help in the midst of those and they were criminalized. Um, they were shamed. Um, they were, you know, they weren't supported in ways that we would say, you know, represent our values of dignity, um, and, you know, valuing, um, humanity, you know, those things didn't always happen consistently, even from church folks who, you know, would often say, Oh, you know, you just, you just sin and stop sinning and get yourself together. Yeah. Um, and you know, my pre- my parents actually needed to go through their own process of <laughs> of the liberating cycle that no one, um, at least at that time, was able to lead them through, um, so they could get free themselves, um, so they wouldn't um, reenact uh, some of the stuff that yeah. they had been through. Yeah. Well, the third step, and I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say you were running out of time when I heard you give the talk, but the third step was take a calculated risk. Mm-hmm. After mm-hmm. you name your oppression and name your oppressor, take a calculated risk. And I didn't get to hear you talk that much about this one. So I wanted to ask you more about it. What does this mean? What kind of risks are you talking about here? Like once you're able to name some things, what does it look like to take a risk? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is like to take a risk on your authentic, powerful self. Mm. Um, so that's gonna, you know, that's gonna look different in different situations, but, um, for me, that was, you know, being willing to make a mistake, um, like big ones, like leaving the military, which was, you know, very safe and comfortable, you know, to leave that and to follow God's call to go to seminary and to enter ministry. That was super scary. Um, from a financial, wow, <laughs> a yeah. financial perspective and, you know, given my own history, but that was, that was a risk, a calculated risk that I took to live more um, closely to my authentic and powerful self. Um, you know, for some time, I think like a common one for people is like leaving a job that you know isn't challenging you and that you know is not really who you are. Um, I think, you know, that's a big one um, for folks is, you know, when you're in situations and circumstances that you, 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 you sense that you need to move and maybe there's a little fear or hesitancy um, to, to move closer to your authentic self is, is taking that calculated risk. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, this is not about me, but I, I wrote a book two years ago called, you know, uh, let go leaning into the future without fear, which is a lot about this calculated risk. And it was a, it is really based on the Exodus story, you know, people leaving, uh-huh. leaving behind uh, God, letting God lead them out of a land of slavery into the wilderness and into the promised land. And risk was all along the way because uh-huh. even when things are bad in our lives, there's a certain comfort to staying put and uh-huh. any kind of movement, <laughs> even if we sense uh, our true selves coming through and we can get scared, right. Of, of actually leaning or living into that, um, uh-huh. which seems so real. Uh-huh. The next Absolutely. step, step four, you said was to politicize your anger, which I thought was a really, 
a really interesting choice of words. You know, you, you talk about politicizing your anger as a critical step in kind of the pathway from maybe, maybe a, a state of oppression or I don't know if people would call that victimhood, if that's fair, to, to one of power. What, mm-hmm. is it, what does it mean? Can you explain what you mean by politicize something, especially since so many people see that word in a pejorative sense? But what do you mean when you yeah. say politicize your anger? Yeah. I mean, I think the simple way, just based on the conversation we've been talking about, is you know, what are the larger forces that are having a direct impact on the issues that one is facing that aren't simply individual? You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's taking that wider look um, at, uh, what happened, what's the why, and what are the systemic and structural pieces of that why, um, who are the people, the other people, um, that are in power and that are making decisions, um, that are having an impact. And so when we say, you know, politicizing our anger, it's the move for me from like, you know, people, didn't help my parents. And there were a lot of systems and folks that didn't help my parents. And isn't that what they're supposed to be there for? You know? Um, and so realizing take, you know, moving sort of from the individual to the institutional and, um, beginning to hold the institution accountable, um, for, um, its failure. I imagine I'm just thinking about your own experiences and especially when you were a chaplain to incarcerated youth that it could be easy for people to just blame these youth, you know, they did something bad or they did something wrong and and it was convenient never to ask the, those larger questions like why do we have, you know, young people doing these things. Why is a disproportionate right. amount of the people here black and not white? I mean, just all sorts of right. why questions. <laughs> well, right. It's not just that somebody did something bad. There, there seems to be something else at play here. Yeah. Absolutely. You end with uh, the, number five. So name your oppression, name your oppressor, take a risk as your authentic self starts to poke through or reveal itself, politicize your anger, begin to ask maybe larger questions about why. And then you ended with reflect, which I thought was such an interesting um, kind of last step. It, It strikes me that reflecting as we work or as we struggle or as we fight, even especially maybe in, in some of these larger ways, reflection is so important. Can you talk about why you think reflection is so important and you know, when we, you know, what is stopping to reflect do for someone? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think initially, I mean, like from like a practical organized perspective, we believe that those, you know, sort of individual uh, oppressive behaviors are sort of always there and written and ready to show up. Like there's always um, a chance that we could sort of revert um, to um, our less authentic, less powerful selves. And so um, reflection gives us an opportunity to, particularly all like on a weekly basis, you know, look at our behavior and choices and be honest. You know, we have this practice in our community called agitation, like where other people reflect with you about Mm -hmm. your behavior and choices Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of catch your blind spots. Like, this is the pattern I'm seeing of behavior. This is the stuff that you keep doing. 
you know, is this related to, you know, that, um, that a, a lesser authentic and less powerful version of yourself? This is the vision I see of you. What is getting in your way and why, you know, you, you, you have to stop moving <laughs> to, uh, to, to think about that and process that. Um, and so it's an opportunity to notice um, what you're doing and why you're doing it and make some intentional choices. I think it's also an opportunity to connect and ground our work, you know, and our values um, for, you know, you know, for me as a Christian, you know, like to kind of get with God and say, okay, why am I doing this? Is this in line with what I believe? Is is, is this okay? Is this right? Um, are we okay, God? Um, yeah. You know, it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's important to check in. Um, no, I was just, as you were talking, I was thinking about how important it can be, especially if we're working at a larger level, because it, it can be so easy. I imagine to get off base. I mean, it might sound cliche, but to sort of lose a sense of our center, Mm -hmm. um, like to use your previous example, I imagine you could slip back into perfectionism pretty easily if you don't reflect or back into a kind of anger that's not helpful, but is actually holding you back or something like that. And if we don't check in as to, you know, why we're doing what we're doing and how we're going about doing it, we could just actually replay or play back out some of those same oppressions that we're trying to let go of. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't say this, but I, I think there's something about reflection that needs to take place in our body, um, just as some of, you know, sort of these, you know, some of these initial traumas and um, oppressions sort of take place in our body, that reflection, particularly in community, um, can be a space to um, to get some of our new habits and new choices and new intentionality and our better authentic uh, and powerful self um, to, to get used to what that feels like in our body. And, um, I think finally, like, um, with the reflection, our work becomes more about who we are and not just something that we do. Yeah. Um, and I think that guards against a lot of things like burnout and unfulfillment and the lack of joy in work mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other things. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I was I wanted to end, and it's kind of where you ended in this talk. I mean, you you were talking on the one hand about all of us, every everyday people, and, and then kind of secondly, specifically people who are sort of involved in seeking social change or, or changing others or changing systems. And so many who, people, I think, who get involved in that kind of stuff and in, in seeking change, working for change, haven't always done the hard work of individual liberation or development. I mean, this is something that I think I heard you point out. And yet you talked about the idea that individual development and social action really go hand in hand. Um, What happens if we neglect individual development and we just hop immediately into, you know, fighting for social change or fighting for social action, but we haven't stopped to do this personal work alongside it? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) So many, so many cautionary tales here. Um, I mean, 
I think I think sort of like to last comment. I think it's so much easier to kind of get dragged into the petty and into the inconsequential. Yeah. Uh, I think you know. I just think about you know movement spaces and like how folks get sidetracked and easily distracted or disorganized by some of those forces who want us to be disorganized or want to <laughs> confuse someone. That. Um, it's so much easier to do that when folks are not centered in on their values and their authentic selves and um, know why they're there and who they are. Um, If people are confused about that, um, it's really hard to sustain um, this work. Um, So I think, you know, you know, in the community, you know, we're starting to see a lot of attention to folks that are, you know, doing healing um, and trying to be attentive to, you know, traumatic histories um, with folks that do, you know, activism and organizing. And I think this is the reason it's because all that stuff comes up (laughs) in the work and um, it needs to be attended to. I mean, I think another application specifically as you're, you know, we're having this conversation is a lot of folks that are moving into anti-racist work, right? Yeah, And you talk about something that's going to be, you know, pretty uncomfortable, um, pretty quick. And, you know, folks are jumping out there to be Mm anti-racist and haven't spent any time, really. You know, they've read a book or they've been to a book club or they heard a sermon or something. And, you know, and they're at the Black Lives Matter vigil, you know. I mean, this, this, I feel like this is something I uniquely have something to say about, you know, as a pastor of a lot of white people. I mean, uh, this is something I've noticed uh, really ever since we started doing um, intentional anti-racist work at the gathering, whether it's books or conversations, is that, and I'm talking primarily about white people, the, the well-intentioned people, but they, they immediately jump to the question, well, what, what should we do about it? What can we do about it? And that strikes me as, as an example of what you're talking about, that, that idea that the first question we ask is, what can we go do? Not necessarily sitting with the reality and thinking, you know, how has this played out in my own life? Or we don't turn that attention towards self. It's, it's much easier sometimes to say, what can I go and do? Where can I volunteer? What March can I go to instead of sitting with some of that stuff and thinking about ourselves in the midst of it? Yeah. Cause I think in that way, um, then we're not, we don't experience transformation. Mm. Um, and I, I do believe that, um, you know, something like our gospel might say that transformation is necessary um, <laughs> to sustain <laughs> a conversion um, is necessary to sustain the movement. Um, I think it has to come from a real authentic place um, that will kind of burn out really quickly um, if it's not rooted in our authentic and powerful selves. Yeah. Well, amen to that. Well, um, Dietra, I want to thank you so much for not only for taking time to talk today, you've offered so much uh, to people who are listening, 
and for your work and the the academic labor that went into this because I, I know that there was a lot but just thank you also just for all the work that you do and congratulations on your new role at Eden. You were recently uh, promoted, you're a professor there, teaching a lot of this to students. And uh, I just really appreciate you and the work and thank you so much for joining uh, me today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much, teacher. That was awesome. Oh, good. And I, a good fun conversation. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, I mean, th- I really, I love that talk. And I just, I thought this is like a sermon series waiting to be preached. <laughs> it seems like to me, but I, uh, thank, thank you for taking time to, uh, uh, unwrap it a little bit more, especially for kind of how it might apply to everyday folks. So th- thanks so much. No problem. All right. I'll send you a copy, a link to it. If you want to share it when you're, when it's out. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening today. Just a reminder, you can connect with me at Pastor Matt Miofsky on Facebook. Just search for me there. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as well. I'd love to hear from you. You can also, you can post questions there, but you can also email me questions at the F word at gatheringnow.org. So the F word at gatheringnow.org. Please email me your questions. Uh, Next week, I'm going to begin once again the mailbag and start answering some of the questions that you've been sending me. I'd really love it. You can ask me anything that you want, anything you've been curious about when it comes to faith or God or life, Uh, but it's a lot of fun just hearing what's on your mind and answering that. So do me a favor. If you've never done it, uh, just today, go to the Facebook page, Pastor Matt Miofsky. Um, I'm going to put a post up, what questions are on your mind. You can just comment on it. I'd love for you to do that. Or uh, just send an email. As soon as you're sitting down, as soon as you are able, the F word at gatheringnow.org. Love for you to do that. Uh, Don't forget, share the podcast with anyone that you think would be interested in it, particularly today. I think what Dietra has to say about liberation and, and overcoming oppressions is something that someone in your life needs to hear. So I hope you'll share it with her. Uh, Again, you can find links to the podcast wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify. It's also just on our website, gatheringnow.org, and and search for the F word, backslash the F word. Uh, And if you haven't done it, rate it, subscribe. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you have a great week, and I'll be here next week. See you then.